0: It turns out, actually, they're not quite opposite um, ends of the same coin. They turn out to be two different coins.
1: This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. Ryan's away on vacation this week, but he'll be back next time. Today, in episode 29 of the show, we're joined by Neil Lewis, Jr., a social psychologist from Cornell University. He'll talk with us about his research into what differentiates students who experience difficulty in college as a sign of the importance of succeeding academically, from those that take difficulty in school to mean that successfully completing a college degree is impossible. Here's Neil Lewis, Jr.
0: Well, hi. I'm Neil Lewis, Jr. I'm an assistant professor at Cornell University um, in the Department of Communication, um, and I'm also in the graduate faculty in Communication and Psychology um, here at Cornell. I'm broadly interested in trying to understand what are barriers that keep people from achieving their goals in a variety of domains. So I've done work on savings behavior, I've done work on health behavior, increasingly doing more work um, in the climate change sustainability um, area, do a lot of work in education. Um, but yeah, what are the barriers that keep people from succeeding and how can, Studying those processes um, help us to potentially develop interventions that can help people achieve their goals. That's sort of the broad unifying theme of my work.
1: As it's the main title of his paper, we began by asking Neil to explain the basic idea behind the notion of no pain, no gain.
0: Yeah, when we experience difficulties in life, we often have to come up with an interpretation for what that means, right? So if you have this sort of no pain, no gain mindset, or in this work we talk about that is interpreting difficulty as importance, then sort of the struggle seems worth it and you're more likely to persist afterwards. But if it doesn't seem like it's worth your time is another interpretation, so difficulty means impossibility, then you might as well quit. And so these are two things that we've been looking at largely in education and health of settings, but they turned out to predict persistence and performance um, in these domains.
1: Since unimportance and possibility aren't opposites of one another, Brian and I wondered whether importance and impossibility are. Here's what Neil had to say about the question.
0: It turns out actually they're not quite opposite um, ends of the same coin. They turn out to be two different coins. But what I mean by that is the interpretation of difficulty as importance and interpretation of difficulty as impossibility are actually uncorrelated. So they're orthogonal constructs and this is something that Oliver Fisher has been doing a lot of work on lately, sort of figuring out what the separate variance is for these constructs and as well as other motivational constructs in social psych literature.
1: Neil and his team on this project, which included Christina Igliani, who's now with Paris Descartes University, and Daphne Oyserman at the University of Southern California, carried out two separate studies, both of which were related to the degree to which students viewed experiencing difficulty in school as a reminder of the importance of persisting towards attaining their educational goals. So we asked them to explain what each of these studies entailed, as well as what they found.
0: The first study was the large correlational study where we just surveyed um, a bunch of Americans. We had over a thousand people answer this questionnaire, and then we looked at demographic correlates of their responses, finding that education was a big factor, but there's also a moderation by racial, ethnic minority status. And then the second study, we looked at that in the community college setting, because Part of the backdrop of this work was really trying to understand some some gaps in educational outcomes between community college students and four-year university students. So we know that community college students are less likely to graduate than university students. So we're trying to figure out, well, what are some key differences between community college students and four-year university students that might help us understand this and thus what we might be able to do about it. So the paper is a mix of large online study and then a second um, study that we ran in community colleges um, in California, in Southern California.
1: The framework the team used to conceptualize the two studies is known as Identity-Based Motivation Theory, which was first proposed by Neil's collaborator, Daphne Oyserman. It concerns how motivation, engagement, and self-concept are affected among people who experience difficulty in attaining the goals they set for themselves. A core prediction of the theory is that it's not their experience of difficulty per se, but rather how that experience is interpreted, which matters most. In particular, what was of consequence in the context of the team's study is whether academic identities and the strategies to attain them come to students' minds and influence their academic engagement, as Neil explains next.
0: The identity-based motivation approach really tries to figure out when and which situations people's identities will motivate them to take action towards their goals. So we really look at both these individual level characteristics and broader macro level factors at the same time and figure out how those things work together to help us predict how people are going to behave in different situations. Um, And most of it has this sort of underlying goal of trying to figure out ways to develop uh, interventions to sort of bridge or close gaps between people's aspirations and what they ultimately achieve. It's a big framework that guides much of our thinking and the work that we're doing here. So we run a variety of studies, whether it's laboratory experiments, uh, field experiments, community-based studies, trying to understand behavior in different contexts. But the identity-based motivation framework really helps to generate predictions for how we think things might play out and how we should then design studies to test different parts of the theory.
1: Neil and his team found that participants with higher levels of education were more likely to interpret difficulty as signaling importance, an effect that was particularly pronounced among racial minorities. They also found that students who tended to agree that difficulty implies importance were more certain about attaining their academic identities and more willing to sacrifice to do so in effect, which benefited community college students more than university students. It seemed to Ryan and me that it might be sometimes reasonable for, say, a high school student to think, sure, school's important, but it's impossible for me to do well, so it's not really that important to me. We asked Neil his thoughts about this issue.
0: In the domains that we've done most of our work and the populations where we do most of our work, that's often maladaptive response right so if you're thinking about you know middle school kids high school kids you need you yeah you need to uh, persist (laughs) right quitting uh will not lead to a better life but surely there are situations where quitting is the is the adaptive response at this point i should not be trying to be an olympic gymnast it's probably not worth my time (laughs) i i could spend a lot of effort trying to do that The odds of success are very low, and I probably shouldn't waste my time doing that. But for a teenager in school, no, I think you should be persisting, given all that we know about the benefits of education for your life outcomes.
1: In addition to the interpretation of experience difficulty, two other components of identity-based motivation are connection and strategies. Ryan and I were interested in learning what each of these refers to and how they relate to forming an identity as a college student.
0: Connection is related to this idea of connecting who you are now and the way you think about yourself now to who you would like to be in the future, right? So we have various goals and aspirations for our future, and it can be easier to... Well, not necessarily easier, but yeah. you can stay motivated to pursue those if there is a clear connection to your current self. So if it's clear why you know, you're know you going through the pain of this extra problem set right now, how that's going to benefit you um, in the future, then you are more likely to sit down and actually do it. Whereas if there's no clear sense of why you should be doing this, then it's hard to stay motivated to do that. And that's, of course, related to the strategies component. So are the strategies that are necessary to succeed things that feel congruent with how you think about yourself? Am I the kind of person that, am am I a school person? Am I a healthy person in the health realm? Can I actually do these things? Do people like me? Engage in these behaviors. That again can be quite motivating. If things don't feel identity congruent, then you're less likely to do them.
1: Under identity based motivation theory, people's identification with their social class and ethnic minority status can influence the way that they experience difficulty, as do their levels of education and income. We'll hear what Neil had to say about how these social stratifications figure into the theory after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to
0: explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's
1: research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Neil Lewis Jr.
0: Yeah, so what we've been thinking about is the relationship between these identities and how things play out in society. From lots of years of research in sociology, economics, political science, um, the like, society ends up being stratified along social dimensions. Life can be much harder if you're on uh, the lower end of the social hierarchy, if you low income, low levels of education, racial ethnic minorities, uh, status, things like that can really affect your day-to-day experience. And so, given that that happens, that should also, we think, influence how you think about yourself in society and what is possible for you. What strategies come to mind for how you might pursue different goals, how you think about your experiences of difficulty, and the like. And so that's the way that we've been thinking about this in our work.
1: Neil, and his team study, used a questionnaire to collect data regarding participants' experience of difficulty. They also solicited information about the markers of social stratification, such as those that he just discussed. So Brian and I were interested in learning how these factors related to people's experience of difficulty in college.
0: We took the interpretation of difficulty scale and just had over a thousand people fill it out. And we looked at the correlates of their answers, and we did find these relationships between markers of social stratification and answers. So the amount of education you had mattered for how much you agree that difficulty means importance. Racial ethnic minority status also interacted with that. So if you have high levels of education, you're more likely to agree that difficulty means importance lower levels of education, you're less likely to agree that difficulty means importance. And that makes sense, given what we know about differences in lived experiences. Those of us who are fortunate enough to have higher levels of education are usually operating in spaces where we do see the returns from our efforts. Working harder does usually mean getting more from it. Whereas if you're in a situation where say you're working two or three jobs, but still not moving up very much, it's hard to agree that that difficulty is important and is sort of worthwhile. So that's sort of the way that we've been thinking about these things, trying to figure out how do these social categories, um, identities play out in the way that you think about yourself and what is possible for you to achieve depending on where you are
1: in society. Neil and his team made use of Amazon Mechanical Turk, or mTurk, to recruit people to complete the project's questionnaires. Since several of our prior guests had also made use of mTurk, Brian and I wanted to know what Neil sees as being the pros and cons of crowdsourcing research participants.
0: Part of the reason social scientists love mTurk now, and part of the big reason we shifted so much towards it, was because from a cost perspective, it's very cheap. So you can recruit lots of people for very little money. You know, back when we ran these studies, 10 cents a minute was considered a fair wage among the entire community. Now that's gone up. But the last thing I saw was like 15 cents a minute. But it's it's still, yeah, so it's more, but still in the grand scheme of things, very cheap. I mean, when we're talking about, if you go to a big survey firm, we're talking, you know, at least $5. So the cost difference is huge. But another thing is we've known for a long time that our student participant pools are very limited um, in diversity. So in the 80s, David Sears wrote this great paper called College Sophomores in the Laboratory. Um, And it's a paper about how much um, social psychology's view of human behavior is limited by basically rich, largely white, 18 to 22 year olds. And so MTurk was a nice alternative in that you could get a broader range of uh, people very cheaply. But it's also, I mean, it's not, it's more diverse than college samples, but it's not super diverse either. And there's only so much you can do, right? The things that you can study are things that can be done in an online survey for the most part. And so that's had some, Drawbacks in my mind in the kinds of questions that get asked. Because, I mean, just studying behavior is there are very few behaviors you can study in an online context. So we've had this radical shift towards MTurk, and that's just sort of changed the kinds of questions that get asked now. So there's another good methods paper. I forget what year it came out now, but there's a paper about social psychology becoming a science of finger taps and reaction times or something like that. I don't remember the exact title, but it's sort of a methodological critique of this shift in our sampling approaches, changing what we end up studying and narrowing the scope of what we study.
1: In addition, the team made use of MTurk's built in qualifications feature to select only a cohort of online participants who hadn't completed related studies in the past. So we wanted to follow up to ask Neil to say a few words about how the process works.
0: There are thousands of people there trying to do often lots of as many studies as they can because this is how they are sort of maximizing um, how much they make. And so you have to. Be careful about that. The website has a number of cool backend features now that you can use to make sure that, you know, if someone's participated in studies before, um, you can set up filters to make sure that they aren't repeat participants. So given that in our lab, we done a number of studies with these scales on MTREC before, we didn't want people who had completed them before to complete them again. And so what we, did was we have sort of these filters on mTurk where if a study contains this scale as soon as the study is done you know you loop those that batch of mTurk IDs into that filter so that you can exclude them from future studies that would have the same measures because there might be contamination issues and so that's um, it has a number of features like that that you can use to try and address some of these concerns of non-naive participants.
1: Neil's been on Twitter since 2014, and both has a prodigious following, and is himself a frequent poster of news about science and academia. Given the growing number of alternatives to traditional publishing, we asked him how he stays current with what's new in his field.
0: There are many times that what we think hasn't been studied before, or maybe hasn't been studied in our discipline or corner of the discipline, has actually been studied elsewhere. And... I'm hoping now that we have increasingly more integrated databases, it'll be easier to find things. So I suspect part of the reason you all found me is because of Twitter. And this is one of the things I actually like a lot about that medium is I'm constantly exposed to things that are very relevant to me, but I would never read otherwise because I basically read the journals in my discipline. There's too many journals, I can't read them all. I get the ones that are mailed to me once a month And everything else is just whatever people are tweeting about. And so now there's, I mean, there's so many things in sociology and political science and public health, public policy and and economics that are very relevant to the work that I'm doing. And I just wouldn't know about it if I weren't following these people on, on Twitter.
1: We followed up by asking Neil his thoughts on preprints, which are early versions of scholarly or scientific papers that, due to the rise of open science initiatives, are now ubiquitous across the web.
0: The pace of knowledge transmission has increased, and I think it's, yes, there's a lot of sort of noise as well that can be distracting, but there's also a lot of really good stuff there. And I now find it funny to get the table of contents from journals in my inbox or the physical journals themselves and open it. And like, I've already read all of this. It was a preprint, you know, six months ago. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, in some sense, I think some of the journals uh, might not be as relevant as they used to now that everything gets posted online. Not only the preprints, but blog posts. Some of them are just really, helpful in explaining things very clearly in a way that actually wouldn't end up in a journal. So that's, I think, a nice feature. So, you know, I'm getting ready to teach research methods this fall. And at least once a week, I think, I've got a blog post on the syllabus because I think many of them are quite helpful for synthesizing the broad themes of the week. So, you know, they have the core journal article readings. but some of these blog posts explain things much better than the articles ever could. And from a teaching perspective, that's really helpful to have.
1: Lastly, Neil spoke with us about what future applications he hopes that researchers might take on regarding identity based motivation theory.
0: An area that many of us are working on is thinking about how do we scale some of the kinds of interventions, both identity based motivation interventions, but other kinds of psychological interventions. That's something that I, I do think needs a lot of work because from developing something, developing an intervention, whether it's with lab studies or even like smaller field studies in one location to bring it to a level that it can be broadly disseminated actually takes many steps. And I think we often stop at, well, I developed my intervention, I published it in the journal, look how beautiful it is and how it, you know, changed everything. Anyone can do it now. Um, or it's somebody else's job to figure out how do you implement it, say, at a sc- in an entire school district. Well, there are many things that need to happen along the way that we need to figure out what are the key levers at each of those steps. So that's sort of another area that I think the theory can help because of it's been very intentional in thinking about these macro and micro level Interfaces at the same time.
1: That was Neil Lewis Jr. discussing the article No Pain, No Gain Social Demographic Correlates and Identity Consequences of Interpreting Experience Difficulty as Importance, which he published with Christina Aileani and Daphne Oyserman in the January 2017 issue of Contemporary Educational Psychology. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscienceorg E29, along with bonus content and other material that Neil discussed during the episode. Parsing Science just launched a free news service for listeners, a mailing list highlighting the week's most compelling science news, from anthropology to zoology and andragogy to zygotes. Just go to parsingscience.org newsletter to sign up. Also, if you'd like to receive our brand new Parsing Science sticker, just let us know where to send it, and we'll mail one to the first 50 newsletter subscribers for free. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll talk with Yoon Lee from The Ohio State University. He'll discuss his research into how subtle differences in hearing acuity can affect speech comprehension among young adults. The right side of the brain, uh, sort of homologous area, comes into play to compensate for sort of a cognitive and hearing decline, um, which we typically see people after age 50. But in my recent study, we were surprised to see that actually the right side of the brain is lighting up, when they have a slight, like tiny bit of hearing decline that is so slight that they're not even aware of that. We hope that you'll join us again.